You're listening to a podcast appearing on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. This is the Versus Machine Podcast, a comparison of great things. The Versus Machine takes on two works of art, one source material and one adaptation, and processes it through to discover the differences and similarities of the two. Whether those differences are good or bad is up to you. After all, it's what happens when you transform one medium into another. It's time to engage the Versus Machine. Hello and welcome to the Versus Machine Podcast. I'm Joseph Burge. And I'm Richard Gibson. And we want to thank all of you out there who came for our recent live podcast at the Spencer Library during the Fandom Con. We want to thank you for your questions and thank you for all the responses and for the time that you put in with us. Because we had a lot of fun and we hope you did too. But this is going to be our podcast version of what our live podcast would have been if we'd have done a full hour. Be sure to share it with your friends and family. You can always head over to facebook.com slash versus machine and talk to us, or you can head to versusmachine.com, click the little button in the top right-hand corner of the page and tell us what you think, or you could just share all of it on Facebook. Let's get started. Today, we're going to take on what you already know we did, which is The Fault in Our Stars, the book, versus The Fault in Our Stars, the movie. And these are very different, and it's kind of weird for both Richard and I because for the first time we're doing something that was written in the last, you know, five Two, years. Not like three years. And so that's really that's really a big deal for us, and it's teen fiction, which we're not normally used to doing. No. But yeah, this is very different. It's something enjoyable. Yep. It's something yep. really good, and we both agree that it's something that may become classic at some point. And that's really important. But we're going to jump right into The Faults in Our Stars by John Green versus The Faults in Our Stars, the movie. Main characters. Hazel. In the book, Hazel is sarcastic, wise, angsty, and dying. In the movie, Hazel is a sarcastic teen who's only kind of sick. Huge problem I had with the movie just right off the bat is that everyone looked too healthy. Hazel did not look sick. Van Houten didn't look old. <laughs> and just no one looked like they really had anything wrong with them. In the book, she's constantly talking about how she's out of breath. She takes the canula out of her nose for like three seconds. She can't breathe anymore. You know, she can't go upstairs without getting winded. That That's every other page in the book. And in the movie, it only happens once at the Anne Frank house. And, you know, it's not really a terrible thing as far as the movie-wise. If we're just talking about specifically the movie, it's not a terrible thing movie-wise. But as an adaptation, it just doesn't fit as well with the story. Because no. part of the story is the struggle of Hazel and Hazel is a big deal in the book and her struggle is a big deal and we kind of see this thing where we're going to keep using this word almost this whole podcast I'm sure which is sanitizing they've kind of taken a lot of the pain out of Hazel oh yeah and by yeah. that they lessen the importance of the lesson that she learns at the end of the story and it lessens her relatability you can relate to her in the book because she's having such a hard time you feel for her you don't want her to be suffering but she is and in the the movie she's not suffering as much so she's not as compelling and not to mention it's the idea that 
our world is coming to where normal is something that no one has but wants. In the movie, she very much seems like a normal teenager, normal air quotes teenager. In the book, she's nothing like a normal teenager, but wants to be a normal teenager. And that's what makes her relatable. It really is, is that struggle to want to be accepted, to Mm -hmm. want to be normal. That's where our society is going to this idea where nobody's normal, but everybody wants to be. And so taking that away, we get a lot less of a relatability and a lot less of kind of an emotional backlash to what happens. Yeah. And to get on those other two adjectives that we used, wise and angsty, since she's not as sick, she doesn't have as much to be angsty about in the movie. But she's the Keith Richards of cancer kids, according to the movie. I'll take your word for it, since I don't know what you're talking about. In the movie, Augustus a few times is like, dang, you're so smart, but she doesn't have as good of a vocabulary in the movie. She's just not as wise in the movie. She doesn't have as deep of an understanding of anything. And she doesn't share it the same way either. And again, it lessens the the lessons. It lessens the <laughs> importance of this book and the importance of this story. And it just kind of in general makes you feel bad because there's a lot of missed opportunity, especially in Hazel. Augustus. In the book, Augustus is a charmingly arrogant teenager who despairs about leaving a legacy. In the movie, Augustus is a charming pretty boy. Again, we see this kind of Hollywoodization of the story, which, as most people will point out, it's a movie. It's got to be kind of Hollywood. Yes, but you can do a Hollywood story of a good story and still do it well. We saw that in Of Mice and Men, which you can also see over at versusmachine.com. We saw that in Of Mice and Men. It's possible to take a Hollywood movie out of a book and still get the meat. And of yeah, Mice and yeah. Men is a great example of that. And this could have been a great example of it that. Have, it yeah. is it is teeming with that teen sensibility, that kind of 80s John Hughes feel in the book that you can make into a movie very easily, but they didn't. They only left in the crowd-pleasing stuff. And it's a big deal with Augustus because in the book, Augustus is not exactly the smartest person in the world, but he has goals. He has understanding. He has yeah. a backstory. Yeah. He's very important to Hazel's revelations. Mm-hmm. In the movie, he's kind of important to her revelations, but at the same time, they've lessened his backstory, they've lessened his adaptability, his human side. Yeah. And so it's just not as easy to get into him. Right. A big thing with his basketball history was the fact that he doesn't like it anymore. And in the book, it's very clear. He used to play basketball, he was very good at it, then one day he's just shooting free throws and he's like, why am I putting this ball into a hoop? There's really no point to this, and then he just basically quits. He has the same line in the movie, I've been trying to find a way to tell my dad that I hate basketball, so letting Isaac break my trophies is probably a pretty good way to do that. But in the movie that comes out of left field, he's not as relatable in the movie because they don't give that backstory, which is so rich in the book. And it's just kind of one of those things where it's really hard to get into Augustus unless, and we're going to say this a lot, it may it may be kind of stupid but unless you're a teen girl you can't really get into augustus whereas in the book you don't have to be a teen girl to get into augustus you can get into him just because of who he is but in the movie he's pretty he looks really good and so teen girls are going to relate to him and teen girls are going to make him into a heartthrob it's this overall idea of a romance movie that kind of washed a lot of the feeling out of the book when it comes to the screenplay for the movie. They washed a lot of the feelings from the book, and the fact that they did that is why we're kind of in this 
unrelatable stage where Augustus isn't really a person anymore. Neither him nor Hazel are really people anymore. They're kind of caricatures of people without the real angst or the real pain that people feel in these situations. Yeah. Supporting characters. Isaac. In the book, Isaac is a comedic story all his own. In the movie, Isaac is a pointing device. No, I, I, I really have to say it. Okay. Isaac is by far, and I think we've talked about this, you're my favorite character from the uh, book. Maybe he was easily the funniest. I was honestly, I had to put the book down. I was laughing so hard when it becomes clear that they're going to go egg Monica's car. You know, Hazel, you got a you got a few bucks, and they go to the grocery store. I'm like, they're gonna egg his car, her car. These like three cripples are gonna go egg this chick's car. They're like, this is the funniest thing in the world. And you know, him breaking the trophies, him just like playing a video game blind, which and just, is all, like yelling. Which, He's hilarious. Some of that is in the movie. Him breaking the trophies and them egging the car is in the movie. Yeah. However, it, it's it doesn't carry funny. the same. It doesn't carry the same weight as it does in the book. Yes. Isaac is a story all his own in the book. Oh, he's, yeah. He's something that I would read a book just about Isaac. Right. But the, in John Green could write that. People would buy it. I'd read it. But in I'll the admit. movie, he's a pointing device. He's just there to say, oh, you know, he wrote a letter for you. Oh, you guys are cute together. Yeah. Oh, all he's doing is pointing out things that the, that the director wants the audience to know mm-hmm. and bringing them to light. Yeah. That's all he's doing. He doesn't have a deep meaning like he does in the book. There's yeah, he, just not as much depth in his character. He's just like a laser pointer. It's like, there's that thing over there. Go look at it. And that's about and it. And it's sad because Isaac is a prime tenant of this message of overcoming, you know, the adversity of cancer, overcoming the adversity of life when you have cancer. Because he becomes blind because of cancer. Yeah. His girlfriend leaves him because he's blind. Nah, before he's because he's going to be blind. Yeah. It's important. And then the other half of the thing is after Augustus dies, he's there to be upset because Augustus was his best friend. Yeah. But he's still there to tell Hazel it's okay to keep going. And yeah. we kind of left that idea out in the movie. It's It was there a little bit, but again, it just didn't have the death, which and, I think we're going to have. We're going to come up with that a lot. And when you turn a book into a movie, you lose some depth. But at the level that we've lost the depth in this movie, it's just not as acceptable as it could be. Peter Van Houten. In the book, Peter Van Houten is a drunk douchepants sage. In the movie, Van Houten is mean, but he's not really relevant. <laughs> Douche pants. <laughs> That's just, oh, it was awesome. When we were watching the movie, people actually applauded. Well, it was a little after that when she said something else, but people applauded her standing up to him, which, I mean, you know, reading the book, I didn't literally clap for her, but Hazel's epithet for him I was, was really good. In any case, in the book... Van Houten has some really good points. He's incredibly random with his, hey, let's listen to this Swedish pop song. Hey, here's like these philosophical paradoxes. Just throwing them out of left field and not even finishing his own thoughts. So he's constantly drinking. I think he drinks about four or five glasses of scotch while they're there. But he still says very important things and accurate things. He's just a really mean person as he does it. 
for me in the book, he was, you know, I told you he, I kind of felt like he was the Riddler or the Joker. He was the kind of person who gave you all of the realities of life. I mean, he yelled at them that people in our generation have a tendency to baby you because you still have hope that there's life after death because that's what you believe in. He says that we're too sad to tell you otherwise, and so we baby you because we pity you. But I won't pity you in the way that you're accustomed to. That's a very poignant point, and it actually gives Hazel what she wants, which is to be treated like everyone else. However, it gives it to her in a very negative way. In the book, it's very obvious that he's got salient points. In the movie, he just seems like a stark, raving lunatic. Well, except that he's too put together. He's wearing a nice suit. His hair is combed. Like, he looks lucid. In the book, he's... uh, How is it? He has, like, sagging jaws. He's fat. He has a lot of chins. And you see him, and it's like... Well, this isn't Van Houten. He's this dude is a maniac. I think that does matter because they're Hazel and Gus's mecca to meet the author of their pseudo Bible is almost broken as soon as they see him. So, again, sanitizing the story, everyone looks too healthy. And the worst part about this, from any type of movie critic's perspective, is the person they picked to play Van Houten was Willem Dafoe. And if you know anything about Willem Dafoe, he can play an asshole so well it's not funny, and yet they didn't make him an asshole. They made him kind of mean, but he wasn't as bad as he was in the book, and he totally could have been because they picked a perfect actor who could embody that role completely and did not use him to his potential. It's one of those times where you miss so much of the emotion of of the story because you've left out something perfect a lot of the same lines are still used in a lot of the same order and with the same intent in the movie what was definitely missing was Lita Vi's response she says a few times Peter you know like you're a horrible person why are you saying that but she doesn't start like breaking down she doesn't scream I resign I think if in the movie Lita Vi was still reacting the same way he would have seemed more horrible because you're also making this pretty Dutch girl cry. There's a dichotomy there that's just not there between Hazel the Hopeful and Van Houten the Realist. There's a dichotomy that is not there because they didn't make them so polar opposites. Yeah. And that is in itself really horrible. But that brings up a question for all of you. Do you think that Van Houten was very good in the book? Did you think he was a sage or just an idiot? Did you think that ultimately they did a good job with him in the movie? Did you think that we left any characters off this list that you really just needed to hear about? Like Monica or uh, Hazel's mom? Go over to our Facebook presence at facebook.com slash versus machine and let us know what you think. We're going to take a quick break here on the versus machine podcast and we'll be right back. Jack Bauer fan? Are you ready to follow Jack now that he's back? Check out the hottest 24 Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash 24 live another day on Fox. An official partner of the 24podcast.com effort. Hello. Do you know who this is? 
Two guys talking the Matrix? Yes. It was a movie that smashed records, imaginations, and limits for gunfire inside of feature films. The Matrix, 1999, directed by the Wachowski brothers, was recently put squarely inside the crosshairs of the perspective review from Two Guys Talking. We talk about the hype, the money, the good, the bad, provide a rating, and discuss the franchise. Also, learn about all the great weapons utilized inside The Matrix from SovereignArms.com's Matt Gummersell, senior firearms instructor specializing in dynamic weapons training. Don't miss yet another record-breaking perspective review from Two Guys Talking. All this and more is waiting for you, as well as the decision to take the blue or the red pill. Over at twoguystalking.com forward slash matrix. It's the perspective review of 1999's The Matrix, only from Two Guys Talking. Looking for a straightforward user interface on a cost-effective feature-filled multi-track recording software? Call off the search! Mixcraft from Acoustica has exactly what you're looking for. It's time to include reliable audio creation and editing software with real punch into your projects. Check out Mixcraft now over at acoustica.com forward slash Mixcraft and start a new generation of audio creation and editing today. Poker's been around a long time. The memories, the cards, the money, the players, it all makes for an outstanding experience. But where can you get true knowledge, tips, tricks, and detail? Don't miss the next episode of Two Guys Talking Poker, where poker zealots Vic Porcelli and Andy Kazin interview poker greats like Michael the Grinder Mizraki, Alan Chainsaw Kessler, Greg Fossilman Raymer, and many more. Add on superb hand analysis and poker industry news, and you've got the Two Guys Talking Poker podcast. Check it out now at twoguystalkingpoker.com. That's twoguystalkingpoker.com. Two Guys Talking is proud to announce a new program on the Two Guys Talking podcast network. Conspiracy Agents. Hosted by Kevin Hawthorne, which will provide outstanding conspiracy and mystery-based content to the Two Guys Talking Network. Check it all out now at ConspiracyAgents.com as another new year of captured perspective here at Two Guys Talking begins. Conspiracy Agents, hosted by Kevin Hawthorne. Conspiracy Agents. That's ConspiracyAgents.com. Don't miss the next episode of the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. isn't just a television show now on ABC. It's a great new podcast available at agentsofshield.tv. Only on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. There's no doubt in anyone's mind that cancer is one of the most destructive diseases known to man. It tears apart families. It hurts people in ways that a lot of people can't even imagine. Yeah. 
personally, I've had several members of my family die from very horrible cancers. And so I share a lot of people's opinions that cancer is one of those things that if you handle it at all, you have to handle it with kind of the touch of delicacy. The book does that in a great deal of effort. Whether John Green knows anybody with cancer or not, he seems to have an understanding of how cancer affects people. And that's really important. The movie, on the other hand, takes this kind of disingenuous approach to cancer where it touches it so lightly that we're not even sure it's really there. I thought I was only going to disagree with you on one point, but I think I'm disagreeing with you on two now. How much do you think an aud- a movie audience could really take with the depressing reality of cancer? A lot. Think That's, so? No. The book... No, no, no. Has, I'm talking about the movie, not the book. Okay. The, Regardless of it being an adaptation, the movie, how much could a movie audience take of depressing cancer? Do you, do you, what do you mean by how much can they take? Are you talking about how much till they're crying in the aisle sprawled out on the floor? No, how much until they don't want to be there anymore? All great movies in our society make people uncomfortable. There are okay. several examples of movies where the audience was so visibly uncomfortable it was painful to watch. That's different than not wanting to be there anymore. You can be uncomfortable and be like, oh, this is I, this is somehow l- less than positive, but you're still there for some reason. I think if they were like, okay, we're going to do a uh, time-lapse video of Hazel losing her hair and getting to the brink of death for 20 minutes, I don't think anyone would want to sit through that because it would be too hard to for watch. For 20 minutes? No. So... How much can a movie audience take? That's what I'm asking. That's up to the individual person. Okay, sure. But you sure. can't, by disingenuous, what I mean is, you said it yourself earlier, people look healthier than they actually are. Yeah. And by doing that, you're taking away the reality of the pain of the disease, which the book does a very good job of showing. You're taking away the pain of dying, the pain of the disease. You sh- They show very kind of offhandedly you know, Hazel getting upset in bed or Isaac losing his sight or Augustus with the thing in his stomach that's bleeding. It's kind of an offhanded approach where we're not directly involved in the cancer in these people's lives. And okay, that's sure. that's wrong. to do. It takes the whole point out of the story. Yeah, but I'm just saying how much of that reality could the audience take. We're clearly not going to solve this here, so we're going to have to turn it over to you, our audience. What do you guys think? Head on over to our website at versusmachine.com. We've got a contact button in the upper right-hand corner. Click that. Tell us what you think about this cancer issue. But there was another thing that I was disagreeing with you on. You said that the book handled cancer very delicately. The book handles cancer delicately in the sense that it doesn't make fun of people who've had cancer. Delicately delicately in the sense that it handles it with the proper amount of force. Okay. It doesn't cram it down our throats. Well, maybe. There's no random, you know, chemotherapy mishap where chemo sprays all over somebody or something that's completely extraneous that no one really needs to hear about. When you said delicately... This doesn't do it delicately at all. Hazel's complaining about not being able to breathe all the time. Talking to her lungs, telling them to keep it together. It's not really delicate, but okay. I I see what you're saying. I used the wrong term when I say delicately, but what I really meant was it used the correct amount of force 
to yeah, definitely. approach the audience with the issue. Okay. So I don't disagree with you. It was just your word. That's cool then. Okay. Oh, thanks for making fun of my word. Yeah. I'd like to. Uh huh. Let's move on. Yeah. Okay. Sanitizing your story. Okay. You've used this term a few times already. What do you mean by it? In layman's terms, when you sanitize a story, the easiest way to describe it is people call it the Disney effect a lot of times. It's you take a <laughs> oh, lot of. Oh, you mean like Huck and Oliver? Yes, exactly like Huck and Oliver, which you can hear over at versusmachine.com. Disney has a habit of taking the most horrible stories in English literature and taking all of the bad parts out of them and turning them into kind of nice little stories. Yeah, they're fun. In The Fault in Our Stars. They did a similar thing where we took part, like a third of the pain of the book and included it in the movie. But by doing that, we made the themes that the book gives us kind of seem disingenuous in the movie. We turned this this into a romance, which the book is very much not a romance. Not strictly a romance. It has romantic elements in it. But it I is a romance with all this other stuff on it. That's what I mean. It's, sure. it's like trying to say Romeo and Juliet is just a romance it doesn't it's it's got so sure. many other levels to it that it's not just a romance mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so the movie kind of takes this whole idea and they leave out the fights with hazel's parents the fights yeah. with augustus's parents they leave out all the parts where hazel talks about how she can barely breathe she can barely move mm -hmm. during the day without without having the oxygen in her nose yep they take out all of this negative stuff and so the end of the movie when she has the realization that everything's going to be okay, it's so disingenuous because you feel that she didn't feel a whole lot of pain. And yeah. sanitizing yeah. your story, the, the basic point of it is we have this goal in our society where it's not just Disney, it's not just this movie. A lot of times we take the negatives out of our stories, and we've talked about this before. Yeah, we did. Where we take the negatives out of our stories and try to hide them from our kids, and it's terrible. It was um, Christmas Carol. That's what we talked about, yeah. I think. Yeah. We take the negatives out of these stories and try to hide them, and it's just another example of how it's, it's a terrible idea to do that. One thing that they could have done that really would have been so easy to do was this other machine that she had when she slept that she called her dragon because it was so loud and she kind of liked it. But in any case, she takes out her canula, whatever, and has to put that aside to put on this other machine that would have been so easy to film. She just wakes up in the morning. She takes this fat thing off her face, maybe takes a tube out of her, out of her side, has to turn this machine off and put something else in. They wouldn't have had to say anything. But she would just wait. Like, they could have opened the movie with that, her waking up with this humongous thing on her face. And everyone would be like, crap, what's wrong with this chick? And you could have seen her physical pain so easily. And I think that would have done a lot for making her a more compelling character in the movie. I had a different scene where it was kind of cemented in my mind. Okay. The scene where she has the three doctors talking to her oh, about sure. her cancer. Sure. In the book, they are actually being kind of extremely rude and <laughs> ignorant to her maybe and in the movie it just seems kind of like they brush over it like it's not that big of a deal and her main doctor fought for her forever to try to get to amsterdam while mm -hmm. that other doctor was literally making a joke out of it like saying are you are you know are you mental you want to get on a plane right and so you know they they took all of that negative emotions out of that room at that time 
And it just made it seem like she wasn't going through as much as she was. Right. It seemed like those the doctors in the movie were overreacting, which in the book you don't get that idea at all. You almost feel like they're underreacting. Yeah, if anything. The Fault in Our Stars. We're referring to the title at this point. When the movie was over, <laughs> I I turned to everyone with me and I was like, where was the title? What did the title mean? You watch the movie, they don't really like use the word fault. They don't use the word stars, but there are enough stars that you're kind of wondering about it, like the champagne, stars on her ceiling. The she waiter says was once, the best character in the whole film. <laughs> she says once that Gus was her star-crossed lover, but that's it. With such an interesting title, that's not something like, say, you know, Lucy or Pirates of the Caribbean or Chronicles of Narnia, where it's just, that's just what it is. The fault in our stars. What does that mean? You go into the into the book, the movie, wondering what it means. You come away from the movie, you're still wondering what the fault in our stars means. In the book, Van Houten, in an email to Augustus, has the title straight out, and it, it turns out it is a Shakespeare quote in Julius Caesar, as Shakespeare wrote it. Cassius says, The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. And, and that's completely missing in the movie, and I really thought they would have it. Something that the movie did visually that I liked was how they put the text messages and the emails on the screen for the viewer. You know, they did it in kind of a cute, clever little way, and I enjoyed that, so I was really expecting this to be there. Why, why does it need to be there? Why does the title need to be there? Yeah, and in terms of a movie, you got through saying that, you know, how much can they stomach? Well, how much extrapolation can an audience take? The title of the book is an extrapolation. It takes them 10 minutes to explain it in the book. <laughs> Do we really want to spend 10 minutes during the movie trying to explain well, it? Well, I don't know if they would have to. Van Houten is clearly, well, I guess it's not as it's, clear in the movie because you not, don't get any lines from an Imperial Infliction to see how out there Except for is. pain demands to be felt. That's all they say. Honestly, how much extrapolation do you want? Maybe there some are mentioning tons of, of it. There are tons of films that don't have a reasoning behind their title. They are that. just titled. Uh, you want to talk about an adaptation? Sure, they didn't give us the title. But it's two totally separate stories. In the idea of a romance where we don't talk about cancer, we don't talk a lot, a lot of the themes, does the title really matter? I guess I should ask the audience because <laughs> I seem to think it does and you don't. <laughs> well, we want to know what you think. Head over to facebook.com slash versus machine and catch us there and let us know what you think if the title matters or not. Introspection, possible or infinitely flawed? Introspection is a big deal to both Richard and myself. We feel that, especially in a book, introspection is sometimes the most powerful way to explain anyone. Okay, I think you're going to have to... I know what you mean, but define it for our audience. What do you mean by introspection? Introspection means any time that something is not audible or put towards in some kind of visual way. It's anything that the character thinks but doesn't say. Okay, gotcha. That's introspection. Cool. When you carry a book that is largely introspection, as The Fault in Our Stars is, over to a film, you have to take the introspection within a grain of salt. You cannot make a film where the entire film is voiceovers. It's very difficult to do. It's hardly ever successful. And it's not a very interesting movie if all that happens is you hear what someone is thinking all the time. Though I think they could have done it more... The movie could have done it more than they did. They started oh, out completely. clearly willing to do it. There are tons of times where introspection 
is very is very very effective. Mm-hmm. There is a movie back in the I think late 80s early 90s, Look Who's Talking, where the baby never said anything. <laughs> All you heard was Bruce Willis in the baby's head. That introspection <laughs> added so much to the comedic effect of the movie that it was a successful movie. Introspection is possible, but you have to know how to do it right. And sure. the movie took the introspection from the book. They started doing it, and then they left it halfway through the movie. So it is, just went away. Is introspection something that you could show in a movie in facial expressions? Well, of course it is. So you don't you don't they'd... have you don't necessarily have to make your character say all the introspection sure, sure. or make voiceovers. You could you could make a character paint things, and the painting could be the introspection or write something and the writing could be introspection the great gatsby had a lot of introspection in it where nick carraway's thoughts from the book were displayed to you on the face of toby mcguire a lot of you a lot of carraway's thoughts came to you in toby mcguire's face now again so you don't think that happened in the fault in our stars no i don't oh i think that a lot of the introspection is lost a good a good example of that and you were talking about earlier was the scene where the two of them meet in the support group. Okay. The the darting gazes between the two of them, they had a perfect example of introspection they could have used where she talks about people who stare and how they stare and why they stare. And they completely left it out and just kind of tried mm-hmm. to make it into this flirting thing well, that it really didn't need to be. There are two lines that she has there, and the the one you mentioned was not the one I was thinking of because I think that one was covered in them looking at each other. She says if, like, a non-hot boy stares at you, it's creepy at best and a form of assault at worst. But when a hot boy does it, and she kind of just leaves it at that because you can kind of just fill in. I think they covered that well with in the movie with just the two of them going you know the camera going back and forth between the two of them and Hazel trying to wig Gus's uh, Gus out f- from looking at her but the line that they did miss that I wanted them to have that I thought they would was what she says about eye contact she says I I realize now why it's called eye contact because it actually kind of feels like someone is touching you <laughs> and that and they could have done the you know a little voiceover type thing there because they were clearly willing to do it because they did it in other parts of the movie and it wasn't there. Again, I'm not really sure how important that particular one is, but that just kind of stuck out in my memory because it was so early on. I just think that should have been more throughout. Hope. Hope is kind of a bigger deal in the movie than it is the book. Hazel is such a sarcastic character in the book that you don't really know if she's hopeful or not, nor do you ever really question it. Because she's so sarcastic, you just seem to assume that she's not. The idea of hope in the movie, though, seems to be one of the biggest things in the world. You have to hope. You have to hope in love. You have to hope in this. You have to hope in that. And I think we get an overabundance of hope in the movie and not so much in the book. I don't think the book really emphasizes hope as much as the film does, at number one. And number two, I don't think it's important that it does. Love. You were saying the book is not strictly a romance, but what you were saying was that's not the only thing in it. The movie largely just was the romance between Hazel and Gus. Many of the other themes that are very strong in the book, they at least kind of mention in the movie but they don't really focus on it all they focus on is 
is the relationship between Hazel and Gus. While I think that detracts from the book, at least they did that relationship correctly. At least they did it right. There was a lot of chemistry between Hazel and Gus, so that that worked well. The, I, the book still has it. Has Obviously, it's about their relationship, but that's not the the only point in the book. I completely disagree. Really? I completely disagree. Wow. Excellent. Go. Their, their relationship <laughs> is so convoluted in the film hmm. that it defies the idea of love. Okay. They don't really show a courtship of any kind. Yes, they, that's true. They suddenly just are in love. And they even try to cover it up by using the line in the book where they say, I fell in love with him as you fall asleep slowly at first and, and then, then all, all at once. once. Yeah. That's not what it felt like at all. It felt like they went from zero to 60 in 20 seconds. They That's were, were kind of on and off again really, really quickly. All of a sudden it was, I'm a grenade, which they didn't do that well at all. Eh. And then the book does a great job of showing you how love can overcome the, the grenade effect that she talks about where I'm going to go off eventually and I'm going to hurt everyone around me and I don't want to hurt you. The book does a great job of showing us how love can get over that. The movie, however, it just kind of like all of a sudden they're making out in Anne Frank's house and it's weird and then they're having sex. It's really kind of creepy. Their love is kind of creepy in the, mo in the movie. It, no, it seriously is. Their love is kind of creepy. Well, we disagree. You, you don't see that at all? That there isn't, in in the book, there is the, the I, no, 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 no. You don't see that it's creepy? No. I don't, I don't see it. What is wrong? How do you not see that it's creepy? I don't see that it's creepy, but I do agree that they don't have the courtship. In the book, there is the courtship of them pursuing each other by reading each other's important books. Hazel actually spends a lot of time reading Staff Sergeant Max Awesome Pants, whatever he is. Um, she goes out and buys the other books. This becomes important to her, and that helps her understand Gus, and that the movie could have benefited by showing her clearly reading these books and maybe being like, man, this guy's really campy, but I find myself caring about him. <laughs> I think that would have helped, but I don't think it was creepy. What's wrong with you? They make out in the Anne Frank house. Did you think that was creepy in the book? I thought it was creepy no matter what, but that's not the <laughs> point here. At least in the book, it seemed like there was a purpose behind it. In the movie, it was just kind of like, Oh, yay, we're making out in the Anne Frank house and some Austrians and some, you know, Amsterdam people are clapping. It was weird. All right. We gotta turn, we've had a lot of stuff we have to turn over to the audience. Uh, okay, so what do you guys think? What do you think about Hazel and Gus's relationship and or courtship and or creepiness factor in the movie or in the book and the adaptation thereof? Head on over to facebook.com slash versus machine and tell us what you think there right on our wall. A legacy. Gus is kind of obsessed with having a legacy. I oh, want to be remembered. Yeah. Yes. I want to. I want everybody to think I'm awesome. Everybody, I wanna be, I, I, which is I the wanna, big part. And then, you know, Hazel has a big fight with him where she says, aren't I enough, Gus? Aren't I enough for you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a big point they're like arguing on one of the last days he's alive the only reason i wanted to bring it up was because i really feel like in a theme it's there oh yeah but i feel like in reality it's not important at all no i don't feel like having a legacy makes any difference one way or the other you have a legacy no matter what well sure to but have don't a you legacy want to be good it doesn't matter you're dead 
you can't change it once it happens. His thing before he died was he wanted to be remembered widely. Whereas Hazel's thing was, I'm going to remember you deeply. Isn't that enough? You don't even care about people remembering you deeply? That's what I'm saying. I think that's oh, the okay, only sure, thing sure. that matters. Oh, I agree. I think that being remembered widely matters absolutely 100% none at all. So 0%. Yeah. <laughs> sure, I agree. And so did Hazel and so did Gus. And that I No, Gus didn't agree with he that. He did at the end. He wanted to be remembered widely, but Hazel convinced him that being remembered deeply is probably more important. She gives the speech about infinities and how he gave me an infinity between the time that I met him and the time that he died. That's the deeply. But it, they make too big of a deal of a legacy. Being remembered is should not be the goal. The goal should be feeling that you loved somebody enough. Who cares if they remember you? Who cares if nobody remembers you? If you made a positive impact on somebody's life, who cares if nobody knows you did it? To me, it's like the people who give thousands of dollars to people anonymously. Uh-huh. It doesn't matter if anybody knows it's you. It matters that you made an impact in somebody's life. What do you guys think? Head over to facebook.com slash versus machine. Catch us there and let us know what you think. Is it important to have a legacy and be remembered or to take the actions that should be remembered? Parents. I think before we start anything about this, you need to explain exactly what you mean by parents are a theme. The way that Hazel relates to her mom and her dad and the way that Gus relates to his, though we don't see that so much, we still at least in the book hear one line that's clearly a very important discussion between them before uh, Hazel and Gus leave for Amsterdam he yells at his parents something to the effect of it's my life I'm going to live it the way I want to that's all we hear of it but that's clearly they, he was yelling it so it was clearly a very heated conversation so there is a important relationship going on there the one between Hazel and her mom they approach it in the movie they sort of have it but it's not as deep as it is in the book that Hazel was incredibly troubled because she thought her mom would have no life after Hazel died. Because once Hazel dies, Hazel's mom has no one to hover around, has no one to devote her entire time to. And that really troubled Hazel. There is a big theme in the book about it doesn't necessarily have to be your parents. In the case of Hazel and Gus, it could be anyone, anyone that you leave behind. She was worried about her mom being another casualty of her grenade explosion. But wouldn't you agree that that's the entire reason she wanted the answers to the book? Oh, sure. That she wanted to know that there's life after death? Are we getting into that now? I, <laughs> we don't necessarily have to, but I'm just saying. I, I think we basically are, so we may as well. Okay. All right. I mean, it groups together. She sure. wanted to know that her parents would be okay after she was dead. Yeah. That the grenade effect would not decimate everything around them. That there is no grenade effect. She or at was, least if there is, that it doesn't kill you. And Van Houten is proof that sometimes it does. Sometimes the explosion does kill you. Yes, his Anna, her grenade basically killed him. It, it turned, turned him into, him a, into a stark raving drunk. <laughs> yeah. Which, honestly, you feel bad for him in the book. Sure. In the movie, you don't feel bad for him at all. No, you don't get enough just... of a character to feel bad for in the exactly. movie. Exactly. He was less compelling in the movie. In the book... You see that the death of his daughter just destroyed him. 
you don't see that in the movie so much because they didn't pitch Except it quite you right. You just see he's drunk. Yeah. And he listens to Swedish hip hop. <laughs> no, specifically rap. <laughs> I didn't know there was such a thing, but that's cool. I, I do like like that they at least played that song. That was interesting, though it did just sound like a rap song in Swedish. In any case, yeah, the whole life after death thing. Hazel wanted to know when she blew up that it wouldn't kill her parents, that they wouldn't get divorced, that her mom wouldn't basically off herself because she had nothing to do anymore. Um, quite the opposite. Hazel's mom was going to um, college. Yeah, college to become a social worker to help other people in the same situation. Mm-hmm. And Hazel's like, this is freaking awesome. Or This is the answer that I wanted about Anna's mom. Or I'm just getting it right here. Or it's awesome. the swing set, which you were so upset that they didn't mention because at all in Because they got right set. to it. Gus comes over, I want to see this swing set of tears, and they sit on it, but then they don't. And again, the courtship is in missing the bu- between the two of them in the book writing this ridiculous Craigslist ad about a pedophilic swing set. That's It's an awesome ad, honestly. I would flag it as best of Craigslist. <laughs> but they don't... They talk about the swing set, but then they don't write the ad. They don't, get, they don't give it to someone else, which was a big point for you. Because it shows that there is life after death. Yeah, Hazel can't she use it anymore, saw, but someone she else She saw that the, the swing set resembled death for her. Yes. It was something she couldn't use. Yep. It was bought for her. It's nothing but tears now. It's death to her. So by giving it away to a family that needed it, it creates life after death. There is always life after death. Yeah. You can always create more life from death. Even in Van Houten's case, where he broke down completely, he wrote a book that at least helped Hazel and Gus, if no one else. So there is always life after death. Yeah. It's what you do with that life that matters. Mm. Is this a classic? Not yet, simply because it's two, maybe three years old at most. So Will it, it become a classic? That's that's the question. Is it? No. Will it? Maybe. We can't know. Well, I, you've read a lot of you've read a lot of contemporary authors, and you've read a lot of foundational authors. Sure. Will this become a classic? It can, perhaps. If you want to talk, perhaps Twilight became a classic, and that has the literary value of no, you know a fish. <laughs> there are advantages of me working at a library that I can see how long a book lasts. No one checks out Twilight anymore. Well, I realize that. I realize it. <laughs> that didn't matter two years ago when the movies were still coming out. People were still checking out the books then because they were watching the, you know, watching the movie. Well, how many, how many? They don't go out at all anymore. It's not a classic. Mm-hmm. Friggin', you know, Huck Finn, well, only when it's required reading, but there are still people who read it, who read things like Huck Finn, Christmas Carol, so can it but no one's a, reading Twilight anymore. So can it become a classic without someone imposing it on a group of people? Let me put it to you this way. Would no, you have read Of Mice and Men if it wasn't required? I wouldn't have found it. So what is a classic? The point of me asking you this question, sure, and this is strategically a question for you, the point of me asking you this question is, I want you to think for a second and say, what is a classic? What can be a classic? Because I guarantee you, by the do- the eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg, who <laughs> Van Houten says that we can't ask what happens to them either, a- any more than his characters, how do you become a classic? Something that is well done. It is a powerful work of art in and of itself, but it is also enduring. Lord of the Flies. You hate Lord of the Flies. I just don't like is how it it's cla- written. Is it classic? I, 
I don't want to get off on a tangent on this. I don't think Lord of the Flies is terribly well written, and I also don't find it to ask that compelling of a question. Not a question that needed such a long friggin' book. Is this book well written? Yes. The Fault in Our Stars is well written. Other than being a good work of art, the classic also needs to be enduring. Okay, how long is enduring? Is it 10, 50 years? Who knows? I think currently with the way our media works it's a much shorter time than it used to be six months <laughs> possibly in any well then then it almost would be already because the book was written two years ago um and it's just now coming up just now coming out as a movie so maybe it is but in any case it also needs to be enduring things like oliver twist we don't exactly have workhouses around here anymore we don't have the exact same things that happened to oliver we have poor people, we have rich people, we have rich people not helping the poor people the way that they should, but we don't have that exact situation. Nevertheless, what that book has to say still matters now. Great Gatsby. We're not in the Roaring Twenties, but what that book has to say still matters now. I want to hear from the audience. I Is do. this a classic? Or will it be one? Both questions are valid. Is it or will it become a classic? Head over to versusmachine.com. Click the contact button in the top right-hand corner of the page. Fill out the quick web form and let us know what you think. Lessons. Pain demands to be felt. Didn't Hazel and Gus hate that line? Yes. Did that come from an imperial infliction or was that it one of the... came inc- from an imperial infliction. That wasn't one of the encouragement on Gus's parents' No, walls? it came from imperial infliction. Okay. And she was happy when he said it the first time because it was from her book. Sure. So then what changed? I don't know. The movie made it seem like it was a good thing. <laughs> it's kind of the a, rainbow I, I without mean, the I rain. Mean, I mean... Unless you turn a hose on. I mean... <laughs> I, I'm, being, I'm being completely honest with you when I say that, in general, this is one of the dumbest lines in the entire book. Pain doesn't do anything. You're personifying pain. Pain do that does not everything. demand to be felt. There are plenty of people who make an entire life out of not feeling pain. Sure. Out of, it's out, called out of, Tylenol. And avoiding it. It's called drinking and drugs <laughs> and everything else. We built a society on the idea of avoiding pain so oh, you yes. can't say pain demands to be felt because if it demanded it, we couldn't get rid of it. You can ignore demands all the time. They made it seem like you every time they tell you can't avoid it. Hmm. You can't avoid pain. We make an entire society based on avoiding pain. Should we avoid pain? No. You have to feel pain in order to be a full person. So then why do you not like this line? Pain doesn't demand anything of you. Knowledge demands that you feel pain. You can't learn anything unless you've felt pain. Right. You can't be patient until you've been in situations where you have to be patient. Okay. Mm -hmm. But the personification aside, you seem to agree with what it means. That... You have to feel the pain to get somewhere in life. A real life has a legacy, even if it's not grand. You always have an imprint. Someone remembered you. Someone knows you. Hazel's point is extremely valid, where you may only be important to one person, but you're still important to that one person. So you're saying that's enough? Yes. I agree. Gus represents our society, if you think about it. Our society is obsessed with the idea that the more people that love you and the more people that know you, the more worth you have. Yeah. That's how we judge our celebrity system. Celebrities are seen as better than us because more people love them. But the sad, simple fact is one person should be enough. One set of love should be enough. 
you should stop needing all this other love. And it's a big point in the book. It's a big lesson in the book. And I think that you need to take that away. You need to take it. When you read this book, you need to take away, point blank, one person's love is enough. And you know what? Sure. Don't take one person's love is enough to mean you have to find a significant other either because it doesn't. So you don't have to get married to have a deep impact on one other person. You had a deep impact on the person you came out of 90% of the time. <laughs> you so have then you don't have to do anything fa- past You that. have some sort of family 90% of the time. So you don't have to do anything past that. No. <laughs> you make a deep impact on somebody's life by walking by them and smiling when they're having a bad day. They may Maybe. remember you for the rest of their life. May. Sure. I guarantee you everyone's made a deep impact on somebody's life at least once without even knowing it. Yeah, I can remember a teacher in seventh grade said, like, one thing to me offhanded that I still remember that, and I never saw the dude before or since. So, yeah, I see what you're saying. As a society, we need to understand that a deep impact just comes from living, and that just because you don't know that somebody remembers you doesn't mean they don't. All the answers you seek are hidden before your eyes. Now, the first time you said this, I'm like, what the heck are you talking about? So what are you talking about? 90% of the time in life, we go on these grand meccas as Hazel and Augustus went to find answers to questions that we have. In Hazel's case, they wanted the answer to the question of what happens at the end of an imperial infliction? Can life come from death? Yeah. She could have recognized the answer to all of those questions without ever seeing Peter Van Houten. Right. That's what we were saying about Hazel's mom, Mm -hmm. that Hazel got the answers about Anna's mom through Hazel's own mother. In life, the answers that you seek are often right before you. Unless you're asking a question that no one can answer, the answer that you need to live your life is often in the easiest place you can think. You could go into a room and meditate for 30 minutes and think about it. You could look at your life. You could read a book. You could watch a movie. There are lots of ways that you could obtain the answers that you speak, but you have to look for them. And a lot of times, we don't want to look for them. We want them handed to us. We've oh, come sure. to a point in our society where we don't want to do the work. We don't want to do the homework. I don't want to go read a book. Yeah. I don't want to go watch a movie. I would just want somebody to tell me what I want to know. Yeah. I feel like if I come to you, Richard, and ask you a question, you should just have an answer for me. And that's wrong. That's wrong. We somehow That shouldn't lo- be the only way to find things. We somehow lost ourselves along the way and lost... And to me, that's the fault in our stars. The fault in our stars is... We can't figure out how to operate without somebody spoon-feeding us stuff. And we shouldn't do that anymore. We should grow, learn, excite ourselves, all without having to have somebody point-blank as a scientist come out and tell us, this is life. Love doesn't conquer all, but rather endures. Hazel and Gus loved each other. I, if you don't, if you think their love was creepy in the movie, you can see it in the book that they clearly cared for each other, and it was a legitimate affection. It wasn't just puppy love. It wasn't just lust. They actually did legitimately care for each other. That didn't cure either one of them. Love doesn't fix cancer. You can't love someone enough that their cancer will be healed. It doesn't work that way. You can't cry on them. In the you know where where is their tumor? I can cry love tears and it'll it'll heal it. No, it doesn't work that way. But you can still love them past their death. That's what you're meaning here, right? Yeah, yeah. It's exactly like I told you in the First Corinthians thirteen. Yeah. 
it talks about love conquers all, and people think, well, love conquers all means that if you love somebody enough, you can do anything. That's yeah, not what it fails. means. That's it, what you're thinking of. That's not what that means at all. Right. What that means is love can withstand any amount of test. Including death, yes. So Including kind of a slow At the end death. of The Fault in Our Stars, even in the movie and the book, when Hazel is talking, she claims she still loves Augustus. He's dead, but she still loves him. Yeah. And so that's what it, that's what the you know the lesson of love is here. The lesson of love here is not I can love cancer out of you. It's <laughs> yeah. I can love you no matter what happens and love will never die. And you see that with her parents too because yeah. her parents say because her dad says something really poignant. He's he says, "Well, it was a it was a privilege, privilege to, to love have him. loved him yeah. when Gus dies." And says that's how we feel about you. Yeah. And that's really the takeaway from it. The takeaway yeah. from it is love endures all. You don't have to be alive to love someone. They don't have to be alive for you to love them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that uh, pretty much covers everything. Well, I think. I do, too. What we does do- our audience think? I want to know what everyone thinks. <laughs> head everyone. Over to, head over to <laughs> Facebook.com slash Versus Machine and let us know what you think about this podcast or any other podcast here on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. We had a lot of fun today with The Fault in Our Stars, but more importantly, we had a lot more fun when we were doing it live in front of all of you. But we want to know that you were there. We want to know what you thought. So always feel free to head over to our Facebook presence or to our website and tell us what you think about anything that you heard there or here. Or anything that you didn't hear that you would like to hear. We are always open to your questions. And the main takeaway, we always give you the main takeaway. The main takeaway from all of this is that whole love doesn't conquer anything it endures everything and we need to live with a society where we understand that enduring love is the most important thing that you can obtain it's going to give you that legacy it's going to give you that understanding and without that enduring love you have nothing but we need to as a society find a more enduring love Yep. But either way, we want to thank you for listening. I'm Joseph Burge. I'm Richard Gibson. And the machine is off. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Versus Machine Podcast on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Be sure to like us on Facebook and share your thoughts on this and other episodes inside our online archive of programs that span a wide variety of genres. It's all about comparison, and we want to know what you think. The links to do all of this and show notes for this episode are available at versusmachinepodcast.com. That's versusmachinepodcast.com. Thank you for listening and provide us with your thoughts and contrasting opinions to keep the gears of the Versus Machine running. Power down.